Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the podcast version of Source Story, a video series for history teachers. Each episode of this series features a conversation around a primary or secondary source that teachers can use in their classrooms. Given that the original version of this conversation was held in English, so too is this podcast episode. Watch the video, available on YouTube, to see the details of each source, and visit our website, sourcestory.ca, for resource links and lesson activities. Hi everyone, Dr. Samantha Cotrera here, the Principal Storytelling Officer for the Hiswar Source Source Story video series, a video series for Canadian history teachers, where I got to talk with historians and archivists and artists and community members about a variety of sources that you can bring into your classroom and tell counter stories or discover counter stories with your students. We ask, what is the source, what is the story, and how can teaching with it challenge Canadian history? Because we don't want these stories just to go in and like be part of a normal kind of conversation that you can have through a textbook. We do want this to be able to be to push the narrative a little bit further. And it's been so wonderful because of the diversity and variety of story, the sources and stories we've been able to showcase on the series, if I do say so myself, are so kind of rich for conversation. And um, this conversation is is one of those same kind of unique sources to tell really interesting stories. So before I introduce our speaker, just a reminder that we are on all of these different social media sites. Please make sure you subscribe and like and comment. And we always love to know what you are thinking about and using in your classroom. We also have a website. So please go on our website and we have a, a dedicated page for every single video that we do with tons of like specific resources that we've researched and found and identified just for you. So make sure you check that out as well. And what else am I missing? Um, yeah, our series is kind of coming to an end, which is sad, but our videos are going to like last. <laughs> They're going to be available and last all, all the time. So please still make sure that you're liking and subscribing because we do want people to be able to get these and we will still be monitoring the comments and things like that. So um, please make sure that you participate in the conversation, even though we won't be creating any new content. So let's go over to our speaker today. Um, I've worked with this uh, speaker, um, this historian for a few years now on different writing and editing projects. And it's been such a delight to work with him. And I've asked him a few times to participate in the series. And he's always had like things that we're just getting in the way of us scheduling that, which sounds, which sounds kind of like mean, but no, no, like big life changes, like moves and stuff like that. And so we finally got a chance to get together and talk for the series. And um, I know our conversation that we're going to have is going to be so rich because of the source that he was so adamant about bringing to the series. So um, we're going to be talking with Dr. Evan Habkirk. He is a professor at the UBC Okanagan campus. He is a military historian and a historian related to Indigenous settler relations. Um, he has done some really interesting collaborative work with teachers in Brantford County. Um, and I, I, I think of him related to things like residential schools and World War One. And even though he doesn't have a very big web presence, <laughs> um, we want to connect you with his ideas and his thoughts because 
the work and the, the kind of humility that he brings to education work, especially for like K to 12 teachers, not necessarily like um, professors that he's used to working and teaching and collaborating with, but the humility he brings to K to 12 conversations and the ways that he really wants to make sure that his work can speak to this different audience that he didn't necessarily think about when he trained as a military historian is just so wonderful. And it's always been so great to connect with him. So let's go over to Zoom, let's meet Evan, and let's talk about this other very unique source. Uh, Evan, I am so glad that we get to speak on one of these final videos that we're doing for the Source Story series, as you know. Um, like We've been in contact for the last couple of years on different writing and editing projects, and it's just been really cool to like see your work and like to have education conversations as well as history conversations. So thank you so much for being part of today's um, video. Well, thanks for having me. Um, a new format for me, so I'm really excited to uh, to get into it. Yeah, I know it's always funny because I'll email with people like you, and we'll go back and forth so much, and we feel like we have a personality. <laughs> when we have a Zoom call, we're like, "Oh, right, there's a person." <laughs> Emails. So surprising. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, before we get into it, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Dr. Evan Habkirk, and I'm coming to you from the unceded uh, Selix territory uh, in uh, Kelowna, BC. Uh, I teach in Indigenous Studies here at uh, UBC Okanagan. Uh, my training is officially a historian, although um, I've been working in public history and education and a whole bunch of other uh, fields, which uh, brings me and, well, brought me and you together, really, was the the stuff that I was doing outside of the, what we deemed uh, academic history, professional academic, yes, air quote history, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was so wonderful to work with you on a couple papers, like like uh, I said that you were writing, and I was doing some editing around it because sometimes people really push back when there's kind of editorial feedback to like make it more educational. And it was really wonderful to work with you because it was so clear you were so open to ensuring that the history got to this more public and less academic audience. And um, and so I'm excited for this talk because of that that uh, approach that you're taking to your work to recognize those distinctions and to see where and when it makes sense to activate them, I guess. Yeah, but the, the working in public history, which is where I started, uh, we have a very similar uh, beginning, you and I. Uh, we started at uh, museums where there was costumes involved and uh, uh, we, we had to dress up and interpret history that way. But it was that idea of, the history we were interpreting needed to be accessible and brought to the public. So how do you do that uh, when you're told, of course, in the professional academic sense, that it needs to fit a certain mold? How do we make sure it fits another mold so uh, teachers, students, and everyone can learn from it? And so that's really been, as I said, though, where I'm so happy we finally uh, did get to work together because I needed I needed to see how that worked from your end more than I needed to work on it from a bookend over here. Oh, certainly, certainly. And I mean, because, because again, it's that's conventions of writing and, and presenting. And, you know, it's interesting because with this video series, you know, I have tried to really make um, 
um, an effort to be able to talk to people who aren't just traditional academic historians. And, and that's when I think is the, one of the great things about this series that we've talked to so many people. But these last couple talks as we're winding up the series, which my just got very emotional all of a sudden, um, we've actually talked, I've talked to academic historians like yourself, and we really kind of pushed against those limits of academic history. And that's a really interesting way to, to kind of end the series as well. And the source that you're bringing to us today is also a source that you know, isn't just kind of like in one small archives in, you know, blah, 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 but a really kind of accessible source. So what is the source you're bringing to us today? Literally, uh, something that I grew up with, but maybe not everybody grew up with, but I think we all have a film familiarity with, which is uh, a local church. Um, I, I've, I've been fascinated by churches. Um, they take up our skyline. They, they, they are, are, were centers of, uh, entire communities and they are in themselves documents. Uh, they aren't just buildings. Uh, you can take a look at a, at any church, whether it's your local one or my local one, or, uh, uh one where you are just visiting into a town and learn so much about a community because of that one source. But also the interrelations relationships between that building and what does it say about the place you are in or who those people were or just how do you interact with that space yeah i i love that immediately when you brought the concept of a church just any any church um christian church in a local neighborhood i was thinking about kind of three three churches in my area, one in which it's clear that they're trying to diversify the different congregations that come in. But then they have a, um, a cemetery that's attached that's a pioneer cemetery that nobody can go into. And then another church that's a 1960s building that they're selling, <laughs> like that's not even being used as a church anymore. And then um, a plaque on a like a local McDonald's that was like, this is the founding of our of our like area it had not the mcdonald's it had a church and it was brought <laughs> up in one day and now it's mcdonald's although i should say it, that is a very popular congregation spot for old greek men in my neighborhood so <laughs> yeah yeah we, we 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 can we can uh, have a chat about the church of mcdonald's very yeah. much at a later date. <laughs> that's right <laughs> and so when you brought this source i was like yeah there's so many questions that i have about these sites and also like because i don't i, I don't understand myself as a christian necessarily um or, or at all um like things that i really haven't thought to question about these as landmarks and their their time and space and history so i know that you're bringing to us a couple stories that can help us think about that so what is the story that's really actually the most interesting part of a church there are so many stories just because of the way they've been built or interpreted over time just as you said depending on what that group was doing um, at the time uh, of when they first started to what they're doing now, or to is that group even around anymore? And the church has been sold. Uh, one of the stories that we're going to talk about, I'll actually go into uh, screen share here, if you don't mind. No, let's do it. Okay. So this is a, uh, uh, a 
plaque that was uh, that's in a church that no longer um, is the denomination, at least that it once proclaimed to be. This was uh, a memorial plaque that we found inside relating to the First World War. And what you end up seeing with churches, as I said, a multitude of stories. There's documents inside the church as part of its building. So even though this church is no longer Anglican and it's now a uh, Greek Orthodox church, this is part of the wall. They can't take it out. So it's always going to be there. So when we look at a church, we're actually looking at multiple stories. Um, who's in there now? Who was in there? What did they want to remember? It's almost a curated history of who is it and what did they want to remember in this instance. And in this instance, they wanted to remember um, the professor of music, uh, who was the founder of a uh, social organization known as the St. Luke's Parish uh, Boy Knights Cadet Corps. Uh, but he literally was the son of the founder of this church who was killed in the First World War. This was important to them because it was their founder's son. But if you actually look at the Boy Knights history, this actual history of this cadet corps is something that's not really focused on anymore by the church, but it's still part of that church. It's part of its story. It can't be removed. That's really interesting. I mean, it's so interesting on a couple of levels. And I always love when girls or girl guides kind of pop up as well. And it's kind of interesting that they reference like these youth groups. Um, please remind me, um, where was this? Where was this located? Oh. Like which church? And if you have any other information about like, um, like when it was built or when that was put up. So St. Luke's is found in a what then was a working class neighborhood in Brantford, Ontario. Uh, at the time, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, when it was founded, um, it was founded as a satellite church because this one neighborhood was just booming in working class populations. And with that came the scourge of what do you do with uh, that neighborhood? Uh, you have children that don't have child care because everyone's back working at the factory. You had um, uh, no spiritual guidance. At least that was what they, the, the founders of the church came up with was there was no founding spiritual guidance for this community. So they actually tapped um, the Hunt family, uh, Alfred Hunt's father, I can't really remember his name off the top of my head, to literally make his house the church. And oh, so wow. it literally started in his in his house until they bought a piece of land and established this church. And it's a very small church. It's a very unassuming church. It's not the church that uh, we might uh, associate with a huge spire in the middle of uh, a downtown. It was a really little isolated church. Um, and, and it had a an Anglican congregation that was very devoted to it right up until its closing, uh, which was only a few years ago. You know, one of the things that I I thought of when you were saying like, oh, you know, this was a, a a township and they were like, how do you get spiritual direction to even just like think of when you're walking by in a neighborhood, if you're walking by a church that is a little bit older to like think about literally like where it is in the geography and how, not even if, but how it would have acted as an anchor point for settlement and for around settlement or for settlement 
and and things like education, things like childcare, things like just a community center, the ways that you know, that that functions, because I think that really, like, I'm just thinking again about those churches in my neighborhood about like where they are and how they definitely would have helped move people to that, like as a central place, but also then made it a central place that people would move around. And and that was very much uh, what you find in a lot of churches, uh, not just this one, but churches in general. Most of the time, the landscape around them has changed drastically. And we have to keep that in mind. These Many of these churches are built um, uh, extremely early in our uh, Canadian history, and they are the root of these communities. The community was literally centered around a lot of these churches. And it was a place for um, everything from social welfare to uh, to education, as you were saying, all of these different roles that this center it literally was a community center and i think that that's almost a way to think of a church outside of its spiritual context which again we a lot of people don't have connections to anymore but the fact is is these these buildings still are in our landscape so how do we use them to talk about our local community and what it is that community is and stands for and changed how did it change over time Mm -hmm. they're really documents that um, expand and our understanding of, of that little space. Yeah, that's so interesting to think of it as a document, but then also of its kind of expansive properties. Because, you know, when I was when I was thinking about these churches in my area, and I think about settlement, and I think about pioneer, um, pioneer um cemeteries, the pioneers of the area, like that's a particular type of narrative that they are presenting with the words that they're using and the concepts that they're building really aligned with colonialism. And I I don't know if there is another story that you want to pull out related to that. Well, that's part of the multi-story of these buildings, right? We can't separate the fact that this is a settlers bringing their understanding of the world literally to a space that this wasn't supposed to be. Um, Indigenous peoples who were here first definitely were using the land in a very different way and had a very different association with it. Um, But when settlers came, they brought their beliefs, whether that was uh, their spiritual beliefs or their beliefs in how to use the land. So your, your, your definition of this expansive use of land is really the key here, is if you look at a church and you look at, I don't know, say a forest, you will notice they are extremely different. One definitely shows uh, a controlled environment and a very specific story about what this place is. And it is a story of dispossession. It is a story of colonization for indigenous peoples. Um, and again, depending on the denomination of the church or what's in the church, you can easily find these stories. Well, I want to just pull out what you had said really quickly about like, um, you know, the way that this land would have been used was very different than the indigenous peoples that would have used this land before that. But also like our understanding of the land and our understanding of like, like, the cosmology around the land and therefore the intersection between beliefs and land 
and how that shifts, not even shifts, but how that is dispossessed. I think that is a better word that you use that's dispossessed because of the, the, the building of the church, right? Like how it's not just, it's not just providing a space for congregation, but it's also literally putting a stake in the ground about this is how we believe this is how we're using this space to be able to do this. And I think that's a really interesting element that you brought up. Well, and and this is one of the things about churches, especially in an urban environment that totally uh, is, is unseen right now. And, and we'll use the example of where you are um, in, in Toronto. You have to remember skyscrapers when these churches were built did not exist. These were, in some cases, the tallest building in the landscape. So you were, as you said, staking a claim of what is important Mm-hmm. to this group that's here. Now, in the case of St. Luke's Church, where it is definitely a uh, smaller uh, congregation and was, as I said, a satellite of one of those big churches, it's actually very unassuming in its landscape. It looks legitimately like it could just be a small house because that's what that congregation was looking for and using. And that tells you again about those people and about that space and what they wanted to use uh, these certain things for? Was it to make that grand statement of we're the most important thing here in this area, or was it we're part of the community? Mm-hmm. And that's what the document of the church is, is when you look at that church building, you can understand what those that group of people were thinking when they built that or when they constructed it. Yeah, I love that, that you can really think about the mark that they wanted to make in or for or to the community by, by the way that uh, this, the building gets constructed. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really cool idea. And I'm thinking about like our, the very first talk that we did with the Buxton museum and they have um, a couple different buildings that you can do 3d walkthroughs of, which is really cool. And Buxton was an African Canadian settlement in the 19th century and how things like a meeting building was built and they had church functions in there, right? Like that the idea of having a multi-use space for community that used for a lot of different things, and it also had church services, like what that says versus like the big giant church down on Church Street (laughs) that was the tallest building in Toronto for a very long time where the queen, oh, the queen's dead, but I guess British royalty will come still for um, services if they're in Toronto. Right. And and there's also certain churches that have those designations, right? That this is a, uh, for instance, in uh, Brantford, uh, again, this is my local area. Uh, we do have the, the uh, Royal Chapel of uh, the Mohawks, uh, St. Paul's. It was the first church in Upper Canada to be built when the uh, Haudenosaunee uh, uh, came up to these lands after the American Revolution, Um, and it became the center of their community. Uh, And again, this is where if there's a royal visitor in the area, they have to go. It has that designation. But that church also has shifted its function in time and was actually the uh, church connected to the residential school. Um, that was literally down the block. So the residential school kids every Sunday would line up in their formal clothes and march from the school to that church. And there's many pictures of these 
grand royal celebrations outside this church, but there's also these pictures of residential school children uh, during their confirmations, during their baptisms, things that maybe they did not want to do, mm -hmm. um, but were forced to because they were members of that system. So we can look at that church and look at the myriad of stories that are that are placed there. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, you know, I wrote a blog post about this a few years ago about um, about children's books in residential schools and the illustrations situate them really within a religious context, which of course they are. But then what it does is kind of separates our understanding of how these were also operationalized by the state. Because if we just think it's church and we're like, okay, well, it wasn't my church. So, you know, they were bad, but we aren't. Like it can really put that distinguish distinct distinguishation distinguish okay you know it can really distinguish <laughs> those on uh, that us versus them dynamic but i think that the this kind of like discussion of a local church as a document can really also help us think more closely about our local relationship with residential schools like brantford there is a residential school that's right there in toronto um it's not as uh, present in our local geography, but it perhaps could be through churches. Would you like to say more about that? That is one of the most interesting things about, as I said, that multi-narrative, but also that understanding that um, if you were to, say, take a class to a church, um, just the exterior, or you're invited into the interior, you have to understand that what is being presented is still a curated history by that church in general. Uh, there's another church in Brantford that um, is probably one of the biggest Anglican congregations. And um, one of my colleagues, while he was out uh, antiquing one day, uh, found actually uh, this plaque here. Um, I'm not sure how visible it is because it is very much a small plaque. But this was a plaque that was actually removed from that church. Um, and it's actually for... Uh, the Sunday School uh, Memorial for raising money for uh, Indigenous Indian schooling. Um, so that idea that this local church was actually fundraising and using their youth group to fundraise for what is essentially the residential school system. It's a story that was removed from the church uh, but it's actually still part of the community narrative. This plaque has been since donated to the Woodland Cultural Center, which is um, the uh, old Mohawk Institute Residential School, as part of their commemoration of how did they relate to that local community. Um, so it's a very interesting multi-narrative that you have with a church and with those things that are there. So... Okay, there are there's a few things I want to pull out there, <laughs> which is like one, just like how cool that is as an artifact. Um, two, Woodland Cultural Center is a fantastic educational resource. There's so many amazing things. So the link to them are below. Please, please check them out. Um, that isn't a directive for you, Evan. Um, I I know that you already have. <laughs> um, but okay, a few things. One, it's like right, of course local churches in those denominations would have been fundraising essentially for like poor Indian children, like as a charitable cause throughout this time period. And 
And like that piece that you found, or excuse me, that your friend found is evidence of that. But that's a really like interesting reminder about our connections, like the web of connections that we all have to residential school because of geography, right? Things like residential schools and reconciliation can be taught using some of these things. Um, by even taking a classroom of children to see a church and saying, this is in our neighborhood, you can start that conversation of what does this look like for you? Um, what does this tell you about your current place here? Even if your ancestors did not attend this church, you are still in this neighborhood benefiting from this neighborhood because of this church being here and what they what it represents. It's a it's that gateway to that conversation and it's a way of showing that this story is yours. The fact is we can also tell different stories when we really think critically about these buildings and this landscape as, like you said, a document. And I think that's really exciting. And so as a way to kind of wrap up the conversation, although I think it'd be really cool to keep talking, um, but as a way to wrap up the conversation, our last question is like, how can we use this to challenge Canadian history? And I think there's like a couple different thises here. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about a little bit more about the pedagogy of that, a little bit more about some of those questions. Um, yeah. And Betty, you will just take a bath here while you're talking. <laughs> um, uh, the, really, the, this idea challenges our, our understanding of Canadian history because we've always looked at a church as a very conservative institution and one that, as I said, we've lost a lot of connection with. And instead, we can look at these buildings um, as uh, places where we can have new discussions. We can have discussions about um, what is a constructed history? What is a, uh, what can we extrapolate from those constructed histories? This building is here, why is it here? And it's just a way to just engage students into that understanding that your neighborhood is as important to Canadian history as that big textbook that wants for some reason to talk about the fall of New France as, as, as something completely relevant to you. Put something in front of that student that makes them actually have a connection, that it's a building they walk by every day. Have you thought about that building? Um, have you thought about its position here? Have you thought about your position here? And it, as I said, it, I, we, when I was using this as part of um, the Great War Centenary Association of Branford, Brant County, Six Nations, um, one of our colleagues, a, 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 a very talented uh, teacher, Megan Cameron, uh, designed walking tours for um, her students because she was in a downtown school at the time. So you could go to the monuments, you could go to the homes, you could go and ask the students, what do you think when you see this? Or now that you know this, now what are you thinking about this thing? And then it starts that dialogue and makes the neighborhood the history. Yeah, that's so amazing. And I'm really glad that you you referenced um, the work with Megan, and hopefully we'll come back to that in a second, and you can talk to people about where they can find uh, your collaborative writing with her on that. But 
you know, just to flag at the beginning of your answer, you had said churches are understood as this conservative place. And I think that also what that flags to me is like churches are also understood with a narrative that we can't intervene in, right? Like that's a church, either you have a connection or you don't have a connection and move on. And I really, really love your emphasis on it as a document, on it as an area in the neighborhood or as like kind of a, a button that you can push to understand your neighborhood a little bit more and then the links to a broader nation building colonial judeo-christian value project and i think that that is a really i think it's so i think it's really really exciting and especially because we'll be posting this video in spring and people will want to be getting outside and i you know i think that that's a really cool idea to for for people to do a little bit of a walking tour and if they can't do it during school hours to just ask their students to be able to keep track of what they what they walk by or drive by on the way to school and and the things they assume about it right like to make explicit things that are implicit and then to kind of ask questions i think that's really great thank you then and, and that's the one thing about a church that we need to keep our our minds on is the fact that going back to what we started this conversation with this was social welfare for some people. It was the only place they had to turn if something did go wrong. Um, it's where education might have started in that neighborhood. It's where after school programs that we now know um, as very much secular started. Um, all of a lot of our secular everyday activities started in churches because those were, again, that community center. So learn that history because you suddenly start to realize that this very conservative institution was actually at times depending on who was there extremely liberal um yeah. extremely social welfare extremely all those things but it also has other legacies of colonialism and of built heritage and and domination over space and people it 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 is the multi-story i i was a very afraid of the question what is the story <laughs> Because there was just it's just one. So just much. wrap it up in a quick soundbite. It's just one. Quick yeah, yeah, soundbite. yeah, yeah. What's the story? And I and and as I said, the only way to understand the church as a, a church as a document is to understand its multi-story. So for educators, it is a gateway to how you can start many conversations. For the Great War Centenary Association, we used it to discuss the First World War, but we also used the First World War to talk about treaties, to talk about residential schools, to talk about these things. So you can use that church or that building or anything in that landscape to connect your students to the history of their community, to that broader history of Canada. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because I think that once you start thinking of these buildings that you may or may not have an attachment to as a place of stories that connect to you, like how do you get from A to B in a way that's really meaningful to how you understand how you understand the present in Canada, your present in Canada, the future that you can help build. Um, thank you so much, Evan. This was just so wonderful. It's um like it really sucks to end the video series with such great conversations <laughs> because, because I just want to keep having them. I mean, I can't think of one bad conversation I've had during the series, but I hope that people will find this as useful and interesting as I 
as I have. Um, thank you so much. Now, usually we end by saying, how can people get in touch with you? So that question is still on the table, but I also really want you to be able to flag the work that you did related to the Great War Association and your work with Megan King, because I think that like that those things in particular are really great references, although of course they are all linked below really easily for everybody. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how people can get in touch with you. Um, currently, I'm at UBC, so there I'm, I'm on some directory of some description, and, and unfortunately, that is the limited way you can get in contact with me. I, uh, one of the apprehensions I had of doing this, uh, Samantha, of course, was my inability to be on social media, um, <laughs> and the fact I have zero presence there. Um, as for the work uh, that I did with Megan Cameron and the Great War Centenary Association, um, yeah, the website is uh, www.doingourbit.ca, and it's just a collaborative project that we did with uh, the city of Brantford, many regional heritage organizations, and the Six Nations and Haudenosaunee at Grand River Territory, talking about their First World War history. Uh, we made education programs out of it. We did on massive public education. The only problem is, is our research mandate did end in 2019. And I don't know how long that website's still going to be active. Um, the research mandate is done. And just like this uh, wonderful series that you put together, uh, sometimes things are coming to an end. and We really don't want them to. And that was, it, it's, it's hard to see that work be archived, but uh, we do know that uh, we did set up the organization for a certain time period and uh, all good things. <laughs> Um, all right. And of course, like that article, all those links, um, any any sort of web presence you have, we are just going to bring all that together and it will be on our web page for this talk. So thank you very much. Um, it was so wonderful to talk with you. Um, obviously, we'll stay in touch. And uh, even though you don't have a web presence, we will make sure people get in touch with you if they want to. So thank you so much, Evan. Well, again, thanks for having me and thinking of me uh, for, and and keeping me in on, on your mind for this series. I, I, I do tend to get a little absent minded in my uh, in my travels. So no, you, you definitely did because you were you... like, oh, I'm moving. I'm getting married. I'm having a baby. I'm teaching <laughs> like, oh, my God, you were certainly absent minded. It was like pulling teeth. <laughs> Stop, up. What can I say? <laughs> No, no, no. I'm so, so glad that we were able to do this. So thank you again. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.